0: Okay, I want to finish up uh, the good news of healing. The gospel is a message, and there's kind of a method to my madness here. Once we finish studying the message, I want to eventually go to the next logical step, which is how do you share the message? That's what evangelism is. The evangel is the gospel, it's the message. Evangelism is announcing the message. Obviously, if we don't know the message, we have no ability to share it with others. If we haven't experienced the power of the message, at least in some measure, it's going to be very difficult to give some sort of a class on evangelism. But my hope is if we can really get grounded in the message and understand the power of that is in the message not in the messenger but in the message there's there's something that gets released where we no longer feel like, I have to get people saved, I have to change people's lives. My job is just to announce, and the rest is up to the message. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it, not I, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So I trust if you haven't been with us for all these studies, if, you, if you're missing any of the notes, please let me know because I'd like to make sure you have a complete set of these notes so you can go back over them, study them, and allow them to work in your life because our ultimate goal is to go out with the good news and to share it with others. All right, we are winding up tonight the good news of healing. How many of you know healing is good news? I have never heard anyone say, Pastor, I've got good news. My grandmother's sick. My daughter's been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. That's not good news. That's bad news. It's always bad news. Healing is good. And Jesus went all over the place, teaching, preaching, healing the sick and casting out demons, announcing the good news of the kingdom. Now, there are some problems. I wish it were a nice airtight case where everybody always gets healed and everything works just like the textbook says. It doesn't. And we've already touched on a couple of instances where not everybody got healed. And there are some partial explanations why There are some other gray areas where we just don't know. God's will is mysterious. It doesn't change the good news that God is a healer, that healing is promised in the gospel, but we want to finish this whole section with looking at a couple of problems, a couple of possible hindrances to a person receiving healing. We spent probably one whole night looking at scripture after scripture after scripture, where we saw the connection between faith and healing. By faith you have been made whole. By faith you have been saved. It's your faith that healed you. So I think you can already kind of see that one possible area of hindrance would be lack of faith or unbelief. That's not always the answer, but it is definitely one of them. And in Mark chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, this is a very profound passage of Scripture which I often come back and study. It says, Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there. What does it say? He could not do any miracles there. Who is this referring to? Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the power of God, the wisdom of God. He could not do any miracles there. Man, I don't know about you, but that grabs my attention. He could not do any miracles there except lay His hands on a few sick people and heal them. Remember all the scriptures we looked at? He healed them all. He healed multitudes. Many came and they were all healed. This is an exception. He could not do any miracles there except lay His hands on a few sick people and heal them. And we looked at one other case where Jesus was amazed... He was amazed at the faith of the centurion, who wasn't even a Jewish man. He said, Lord, you don't even need to come to my house. Just say a word and my servant will be healed. That blew Jesus away. Well, this blew him away too. It says he was amazed at their lack of faith. Lack of faith. Hmm. Two things seemed to amaze Jesus faith and the lack of it. One way or another, he's probably going to be amazed at you and me. I think more often than not, he has been amazed in the wrong way at me. Amazed at their lack of faith. And Matthew 17, you might think, well, that was just the, the common people that were coming from, you know, far away. Surely his disciples, these mighty apostles who were going to form the foundation of the first church, surely they were strong in faith, right? Hmm. Let's look. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples. Listen to this carefully. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Jesus is speaking in verse 17. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. Who's he talking to? The crowd? No. The father? No. He's talking to his disciples. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. This isn't a good way to start the early church. (laughs) They're not off to a roaring start here. You know, we're going down to Florida next month to do uh, four days of intensive minister's training. I've already been kind of bouncing some thoughts around in my head. And one of them is, how did Jesus train his disciples? Very different from what we normally think about training. And this was one of many teachable moments where Jesus was training these guys. And it doesn't really sound too sweet. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? I like the next one. How long shall I put up with you? (laughs) Man, that's not nice. How long do I have to put up with you guys? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Naturally, the disciples are taking all this in. And as is often the case, they waited for the crowds to dissipate. And then they approached Jesus with their questions. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private. I like that. Every word of God is special. Came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? A lot of reasons he could have given. Maybe you didn't shout loud enough. Uh, You forgot your vial of oil. He could have given any number of reasons. But he fired right back because you have so little faith. If you read through the Gospels, this was the main focus of Jesus' training for these twelve apostles. It wasn't so much elaborate theology and systematic doctrine. I I don't even see him doing what we're doing in these Bible studies. They were just walking around the hillsides. He'd cast out a demon, give a parable, talk about the fig tree, move on, and then rebuke them for their unbelief. (laughs) That was their training. Why couldn't we drive the demon out? Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. So we can definitely put this one at the top of the list as possible reasons for hindrance or maybe even the lack of healing in a situation where a person is sick. It's not always the case, but it's certainly at the top of the list. Second one is related, and I've entitled this section as sin or hardness of heart. (coughs) Hardness of heart is the result of unconfessed, unrepented sin. You and I may not like it, but sin always brings consequences, unavoidable consequences. And one of the things that sin does to every man, woman, and child, it hardens the heart. And that's a serious problem. The harder the heart gets, the more difficult it is to receive anything from God. Listen to Hebrews 3, verse 8, and then verses 12 and 13. Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Notice I bolded that phrase to connect the two thoughts. Sinful unbelieving heart. They're connected. A sinful, unbelieving heart. And what happens when you have a sinful, unbelieving heart? It turns away from the living God. It's automatic. You can't help it. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called the day, so that none of you may be, and here comes the word again, hardened, hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You know, I can often even look at a person's face. Uh, The face, the Bible says, is a reflection of the heart. And you can can see either a softness in a person's face or kind of a hardness. And it's often a reflection of what's going on in the heart. Kind of like, my defenses are up, and I'm certainly not going to let God get close to me. And He won't. That's what we just read. A hard, sinful, unbelieving heart turns away from healing, turns away from God. And this next scripture, 1 Timothy 3.9, God has often used this to deal with me. I want to have faith. I want to believe God. I don't want unbelief in my life, but sometimes I struggle. And invariably, the Lord says, wait, 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 we need to go back a couple of steps before this. And find out what is causing the unbelief. Because 1 Timothy 3.9 says, we hold the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. Here's the way I look at it. A pure conscience is like a bucket that can hold water. When your conscience is guilty or defiled, it's like a sieve and the water just leaks out. Faith can't be held in a bad conscience. That's why it's so critical that we keep our conscience pure. Paul was very, very diligent to keep his conscience clear all the time before God and before men. Don't let anything spoil your heart because it ruins the whole flow of God's faith and God's grace into your life. Look at the next scripture in Matthew 13, verse 15. Jesus said this people's heart has become calloused. Why do we get calluses? I have really thick calluses on my fingers of my left hand from playing the guitar. They're almost like bone, they're so hard. Why why does a callus form from continual irritation? Something keeps rubbing, something keeps uh touching that particular part of your skin and your skin reacts by getting thicker and harder and a callus forms, which is good. But a callus on the heart is another problem. Jesus said this people's heart has become calloused. I think there's an analogy here. Just as my fingers get tougher and tougher, the the longer I play the guitar and the strings irritate and rub against that, the Holy Spirit tries to convict me. The Holy Spirit tries to touch my heart and say, you're proud, you're selfish, you're you're a liar. And I go, no, I'm not. What happened? I just developed a callus around my heart. And the scary thing is we can actually come to a point where we're impervious to the promptings of the Holy Spirit anymore. We don't feel any more guilt or shame for what we're doing. Look at the society around us. People have no shame now. They do ungodly, wicked things, and they're proud of it. They don't feel any compunction. They don't feel any sorrow or sadness. That's a calloused heart. This people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears... They have closed their eyes, otherwise, if their heart wasn't hard and calloused, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would what? Mm -hmm. Heal them. Wow. I don't know if you see what I see here, but here's a loving God just wanting to heal the people, and He can't because they won't turn, because their hearts have become hard, they plug their ears, and they've closed their eyes. You know, the passage in James 5 that we always use, particularly in the context of the church, if anyone's sick, let him call for the elders, it seems to imply, it doesn't come right out and say it, but many see an, an implication here of the need for repentance, if real healing is to come. Let's read the whole passage. James 5, verses 14 to 16. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Okay, now stop for a minute. That'd be a good place to stop, right? But James isn't done. And I put the next section in all caps. If he has sinned, hmm, why is that in there? Could it be that there's some connection between his illness and some sinful lifestyle? Not always, but it could be. That's why he says, if, if he has sinned, (coughs) excuse me, he will be forgiven. He's still not done, though. Therefore, confess your sins, that's part of real repentance, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be what? Healed. Now, it seems that healing came just from calling the elders and them dumping oil on the guy's head, right? But it seems there's more to it than that. And as ministers, very often, we have to dig a little deeper and begin to inquire, brother, sister, how's your walk with God? We haven't seen you in church for nine months. (laughs) You haven't been to Bible study in two years. Could there be some connection between that and the illness? We're very happy to anoint you and pray for you, but we want you to get really healed. And very often, that involves repentance, confession, and forsaking sin. Otherwise, the same thing will come back again. There's a third area that we have to address when we're talking about not just healing, but receiving anything from God. There's the importance of faith, but there's this other thing that we all hate to hear about. Patience. Oh, man, I like those instantaneous healings, don't you? Now, a lot of times they happen. In my experience, sometimes they don't. Sometimes we need to wait on God. What does it say in Hebrews 6.12? We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And the next scripture I really dislike because it has the word need in there. You have need. Hebrews 10.36 For you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Hey, that's not a good deal. I want to get the promise first and then do the will of God. No, sometimes we need to wait. And I don't know any other reason why this is recorded in the Scriptures than to leave open the possibility that there are not always instantaneous total healings, the first prayer or the first laying on of hands. Because look at Mark 8 verses 22 to 25. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had what? Wait, they just wanted him to lay hands on this guy. What? Jesus, we didn't ask you to spit on him. What's with the spitting? Jesus said, I don't do anything unless the Father shows me. The Father obviously told him to spit on this guy. You'll have to ask God about that one. I don't know why. When he had spit on the man's eyes and then put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? Interesting question. Why did Jesus even ask? Everyone else was being instantly healed. Go, man. Enjoy the scenery. Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people... They looked like trees walking around. In other words, he had a partial restoration of vision, but certainly not complete. What's verse 25 say? Once more. Please note that phrase. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. If Jesus had to pray a second time for someone, hey, get ready. We may have to pray 20 times. Don't give up. That's the message. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. You know, over on page 27, I've given you a couple of different Greek words that are used throughout the New Testament for healing. One of them is interesting. It's the Greek word therapuo, from which we get the word therapy, or therapeutic. It's used often, and it's translated healing. But one day when I was studying this, it kind of opened my mind to realize sometimes, and this has been my experience over the years, I've seen instantaneous healings, but I've also seen healings that were a process. Maybe a couple of days, maybe the next day, maybe it took a week, I'm not really the one that determines that, but I do believe we have to remain open to the fact and the possibility that sometimes there's more of a gradual, therapeutic kind of a healing that God brings. Then we come to the more difficult section here, and I, I don't think I would be doing justice to the scriptures if I left this out. Sometimes people don't get healed. There was a time in my life where I wouldn't have been able to say that, and because of my theoretical doctrinal framework, I just could not allow for the fact that anyone is not going to get healed. But I saw it, and I saw people that were far more spiritual than me, people who had more faith than me, people who prayed more than me, die of an illness. And it really shook my faith to the very core, and it caused me to go to God and really search the scriptures and seek God for answers. And one of the things that God showed me during that whole process was Hebrews chapter 11, the famous faith chapter. By faith Abraham, by faith Noah, by faith, by faith, by faith. Well, there are two groups That emerge when you read the whole 11th chapter of Hebrews. There's one group that received the promises from God in response to their faith. Hallelujah. There's another group that had faith and they didn't. Hebrews 11, let's begin in verse 13 and read down to verse 16. (coughs) All these people, and in the context it's talking about Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, We're still living by faith when they died. I like that. I hope you and I are still living by faith when we die. (laughs) There's a bit of a paradox there. Living when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Wow. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the founders of the nation of Israel, they didn't even receive all the stuff God promised them? Nope. for he has prepared a city for them. Then further along in Hebrews 11, we come to verse 32 down through the end of the chapter. And I want you to notice two distinct groups here. Both groups have faith. And remember, we're told at the beginning of this whole chapter, without faith, it's impossible to please God. There's no other way to be commended to God unless you have faith. But there seems to be... Two different kinds of faith that are being shown us here. Follow with me. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Hallelujah. I like that, don't you? Through faith, they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and they gained what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the fury of the flames. They escaped the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength, and they became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women even received back their dead. Raised to life again. Stop. That's the end of the first group. <laughs> Others. I put it in bold caps to highlight. This is a whole different group. These didn't receive promises. These didn't conquer kingdoms. These were conquered by despots and tyrants and evil people. Others were tortured by and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Apparently, they didn't have enough faith to get a mansion and a Rolls Royce. But strangely, verse 39 tells us these were all commended for what? For their faith. Wait a minute, I thought if you had faith, you were supposed to escape the lion. Not get eaten by one. If you had faith, you were supposed to be raised from the dead. These are difficult things for us to fully grasp and understand. And like I said, there's an area of God's will that's enshrouded in mystery, and you and I are not going to figure it all out. Sometimes life hits us with a curveball, and we just have to lift up our hands and say, praise (coughs) the Lord. I don't understand this one, Lord, but I'm going to trust you and I'm going to praise you. I mean, can you imagine Job saying, even if he slays me, I will trust him. That's the kind of faith the second group had. And you know, I don't want to get too far into this tonight, but it's ironic in Acts chapter 12, in the early church, in the same chapter, we read about One of the early church leaders that was put to death, and another one that was released by angels from prison. It's like God is showing, I have power to open prison doors. I can go in and rescue Peter, but James is going to die a martyr. It's strange. Didn't God have the power to rescue James also? Surely he did. But for some reason, God wanted it that way. And you can... You can ask questions till the cows come home or until Jesus comes home. You're not going to figure it all out. And it gets even stranger. Remember Elisha? He wanted a double portion of Elijah's power. I want a double portion of that anointing you got, man. And if you study the two lives, actually, Elisha worked twice as many miracles as Elijah. (laughs) God is good. God is faithful. And God kept his word. In Elisha's life, he was mightily used by God. There's something very, very disturbing about the end of Elisha's life. Have you ever noticed how he died? Go to 2 Kings 13. If I were writing the Bible, I would have left this out. I would have left a lot of stuff out. To me, that's one of the greatest proofs of the divine authorship of the Scriptures. It tells everything. Nothing is hidden. No one is protected. (laughs) I would have kept this one out just to avoid questions. 2 Kings 13 and verse 14. Now Elisha, that's the one with the double portion, was suffering from the illness from which he died. Oh, I don't like that. That causes problems from my nice neat little theology doesn't fit and God deliberately puts things like that in the Bible and he deliberately throws curveballs like that at us in real life so that we will trust him and not think we've got it all figured out but you know I am convinced more and more and more with each passing year of my Christian life, God has a sense of humor. I can't wait to get to heaven. I think it's going to be fun. I think God loves to laugh. He likes to joke. He likes to have a good time. God is a happy God. And I think he got the last laugh here, because you remember what happened after they buried sick old Elisha? Drop down a little further in the chapter to verse 20. Elisha died and was buried. Now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's dead body into Elisha's tomb. (coughs) When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Oh, come on. You got to be kidding me. There's even anointing on his dead bones. He didn't die for lack of anointing or lack of power or lack of faith. God said, that's it. You're done, man. And this little part is in the Bible just to silence any of our theological questions or grand explanations about what's going on. The fact is the guy got sick and he died, period. I don't understand it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 to 30, it talks about one of Paul's favorite fellow ministers. His name was Epaphroditus. And if you read those verses, we're not going to read them tonight. This guy almost died because of an illness. He was a preacher, a full-time minister of the gospel, and he almost died because of sickness. Why does that happen? I thought pastors were supposed to be like supermen. Well, it gets worse. Paul writes about this several times in his letters to young Timothy. Timothy had some kind of a stomach problem. We're not sure exactly what it was, but he suffered from frequent illnesses. That's what the Bible says. He was a great church leader, but he also had frequent illnesses. Did he not have enough faith? Doesn't say that. Matter of fact, Paul counseled him to drink a little bit of wine for his stomach. I don't understand that. I don't lose any sleep over it. I just say praise the Lord. And then, of course, there's Paul's thorn in the flesh. Books have been written about it. I'm not going to try to write a book, but let me just read this, the section here <clears throat> and give you a few simple thoughts. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 10. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh. The Greek word is found nowhere else in the Bible. That's what makes the passage a bit difficult to interpret or understand. It's just not found anywhere else. This word thorn, it actually means something with a point on it, like a spear point or a sharp stick, something with a point on it. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord then I am strong. Whatever this thing was, it was satanic, it was a tormenting thing, and we're just not sure what exactly it was, but one thing is crystal clear, and that is the effect that this thorn had on Paul's life. What was the effect? Yes, but the immediate effect was weakness. Notice how many times. Weakness, weakness, weakness. Three times it's mentioned there. And this word is a Greek word (coughs) which, when translated, means feebleness of body or mind by implication, a malady, a moral frailty, a disease, an infirmity, a sickness, or a weakness. The same exact Greek word is often translated disease or sickness throughout the Gospels. Was this a disease or a sickness? I can't say. All I know is it was a thorn, and it was something satanic in nature, and it obviously caused pain, debilitation, torment, and weakness in Paul's life. So much so, not once or twice, but three times, he really cried out to God, Lord, take this thing out of me. God refused. Is God mean? No. God had a special plan for Paul's life. He wanted this man to really experience the power of God so that he could preach and manifest that power when he went around the world ministering the gospel of Christ. So through his weakness, God said, you're going to experience my power. The weaker you get, the stronger you're going to get, because you're not going to be depending on yourself anymore. You're going to be depending on the power of Christ resting upon you. My experience over almost 40 years now, uh, I have known many mighty men and women of God who prayed more than I pray, had a greater anointing than I have, knew the Bible better than I knew, and their bodies were racked with sickness and weakness. It doesn't seem to add up. It doesn't seem to line up with what we read earlier in the study. He healed them all. He healed them all. He healed them all. By His stripes we were healed. There are just some exceptions to the rule. And I love 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Paul says, we only know in part... We only see dimly right now. Beware of any teacher, pastor, preacher, book writer, or expert who claims to know all the answers. We don't have all the answers. I don't even pretend to have all the answers. God's ways are not just a little bit higher than our ways. His thoughts are not just a few feet above mine. The distance is from here to the farthest heaven. That's how much higher his ways and his thoughts are. So am I going to try to figure out Elisha, Epaphroditus, Timothy, and Paul?